0: Ajahn Shah compared the Dhamma to groundwater. Groundwater is not something we create, it's already there. We just need to dig the well in the right place. Sooner or later, we hit water. The well doesn't create the water, but you need the well to get to the water. The Dhamma or fundamental reality is similar. It's what we awaken to. It's not something we can be without or something someone has more of, but it's like the groundwater. It's there when we drop the habits of grasping to likes and dislikes, when we drop the habits that obscure the mind. The Buddha's teaching is that the quality of dharma is universal.
1: It's available to every one of us if we make the effort to dig. And all of us here have been digging diligently these last two weeks. These 12
0: steps of liberative dependent arising are a description of how the fruits of practice lead naturally to liberation which is the aim of this practice. Each step is a fruit of practice. It's, it comes from the previous step. When we see things as they are, we become disenchanted with the idea that there's anything worth clinging to, which weakens our tendency to cling. And as we've been talking about the last few days, clinging begins to
1: fade away. When things get thin enough, faded enough, they can fall away.
0: When we're bound by a chain, if it's thin enough, it can finally break free. And when our tendency to cling has faded enough, then it's fully dropped. This is the complete release of clinging, of liberation. It's
1: a profound shift in the heart. It's complete peace. But it's important to remember, as the teachings say, the Dhamma is good in the beginning, it's good in the middle, and good in the end.
0: The entire path is lined with the fruits of practice. As we walk the path, as our clinging fades, our ease gradually increases,
1: we experience more and more freedom. The
0: Pali <clears throat> word often used for liberation is nibbana. It can mean to go out like a fire, to cool. One way of saying it is to extinguish the fevers of
1: greed, hate, and delusion within us. The three roots of suffering. In the fire sermon, the
0: analogy of uh, going out like a, like the fire goes out, um, the fire sermon really connects with that imagery. The Buddha said, everything is on fire. The eyes are on fire, the ears are on fire, the nose is on fire, the tongue
1: is on fire, the body is on fire, the mind is on fire. They're on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. The idea is that clinging is the fuel of suffering. When we remove the fuel, suffering is extinguished. Another word that's uh, used sometimes for nirvana,
0: for liberation, is the unconditioned. It points to the universal conditioning of humans, to grasp of what we want to push, a, a grasp of what we want, and push away what we don't want. And those two seemingly simple conditions are the source of tremendous suffering in our world. This is the very core level of conditioning that's released with nibbana, But that condition can take a personal shape. Maybe our upbringing was such that we're particularly quick to anger. Or maybe we feel insecure socially, or that we're not good enough or defective somehow. Or maybe that we're better than other
1: people. that we can't love, or that we can't be loved. We're conditioned by our families, by the society we live in, by our friends.
0: A very simple example of this conditioning you might be familiar with is the phrase to keep a stiff upper lip. This attitude comes from the idea that trembling of the upper lip is the first sign one is about to cry. And of course, in, in that culture, that uh, crying isn't appropriate. Someone who grows up in surroundings where that's the norm will most likely follow that example. And until it's part of how their emotional life works, they've been conditioned to suppress expressing those emotions. It's automatic. That's how conditioning works. It can be helpful when we see these conditioned aspects of our own personalities, that they actually are not personal. We've
1: all been shaped the way we are by the conditions in our lives. The Buddha focused more on how to be free
0: than describing what it's like. If you've never tasted a fruit in your life and I told you how an orange tastes, it wouldn't really be that meaningful to you. But my enthusiasm about how delicious the orange is would likely make you want to taste one yourself. In a similar way, it's the Buddha's peacefulness It's enthusiasm in teaching the Dhamma and it's invitation to see for ourselves that has inspired the generations of practitioners to walk the path. Another way the path is described is to cross the great water to get to the other shore. This shore is full of dangers and it's stressful. So we cross the water to the safe,
1: and ease of the other shore. So the teachings show us how to build the raft and
0: how to row and how to get to the other shore. The Buddha was asked if he could summarize his teachings in one phrase. He said, nothing whatsoever should we come to. And then he added, one who has heard this has heard everything. One who has practiced this has practiced everything. One who has realized this has realized
1: everything. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. I could easily end the talk with that, couldn't I? nirvana is a release it's like being released from bondage
0: but it's important to appreciate that some releases happen all through the path
1: their things no longer have a hold on us the dhamma is good in the middle And the middle brings us more
0: peacefulness,
1: more compassion, and more happiness. The Buddha described four kinds of clinging that are completely released when we're liberated. Clinging to sense pleasure, clinging to views, clinging to rites and rituals, and clinging to her self-identity. I think what's helpful about considering those four forms of clinging
0: is that how often in our practice do we miss that we're clinging? Do we struggle with something and... uh, and try to fix it and and absolutely miss the clinging itself. As we practice, these different clingings begin to thin, to fade away. Though not necessarily in order of priority, not in the order that we would prefer. In my early retreats, I, I used to always spend time reflecting on my intentions before the retreat. And I'd look at what I perceived as my strongest dukkha, my strongest clinging. And I, had, I would have an agenda that I'd work on and, you know, and where I'd make progress. But the workings of the deep letting go that comes from practice aren't under our control. And more and more, my pre-retreat intentions refine themselves to some version of
1: showing up sincerely for whatever may unfold. It never really worked out, whatever my agenda was. Somehow the retreat always took me somewhere else. So the first of the clingings is the clinging to sensual pleasures
0: and aversions. And I think most of us are really familiar with this. We don't like sounds, smells, warmth, cold. We cling to what we want, maybe food, weather, beauty, comfort. Many of us had the opportunities to practice, to experience some of these in the last 12 days. Did your mind darken with physical discomfort or pain? But if you look back at your practice over time, Can you appreciate any thinning of this deep habit pattern in you? Ways that you're a little more free? Maybe when you first started meditating, the idea of sitting with an itch was intolerable. You couldn't imagine how to go the whole time without scratching it. And now it's simple to allow it to come and go. Maybe now you can step away from the second or third piece of pie. Maybe you no longer turn on your air conditioner when it's just a little bit too warm. Recognizing the ways that you might be free or freer now highlights the contrast between clinging and not clinging, which makes it easier to see when we're clinging and encourages our minds to choose non-clinging. So what I'm pointing to is that it's really helpful to really notice how we're free. How we're free really makes
1: that, that clinging really stand out and be really obvious. The second type of clinging is clinging to views to what we believe is true.
0: This is the realm of the mind and all its objects, the thinking, uh, the emotions, ideas. We're conditioned to believe our ideas, to believe our opinions. If we grew up in a time when everybody thought the earth was flat, we'd believe the earth was flat.
1: You know, now only some people believe that. that we do believe our thoughts
0: including thoughts that are not helpful to us thoughts that sabotage us in life we go through life thinking that those who think the way we do are right and those who think differently are wrong you know maybe what you know, might seem like a harmless comment that someone has bad taste in food or bad taste in clothing as if our likes and dislikes are the correct way to feel. Or this is beautiful or ugly. This is good or bad. This is the right way to do it. That's the wrong way to do it. On um, one retreat, I had a my job was as a veggie chopper, and at the beginning of the work period, um, they would, you know, they would put all the um, food up in front of the group that was veggie chopping, and they would show us what to do. And on this particular retreat, they were preparing the raita, uh, which is an Indian dish with cucumber. And my job, they told me, was that I would have to de seed the cucumber, remove all the seeds from the center of the cucumber. And you know, I was really peaceful. I was very, very present in my body. And suddenly this sense of outrage came up that they wanted to move to move the seeds and throw them away, just throw them in the trash. And and all this papancha generated. And um, it was quite fascinating. It was really fascinating how caught I got by my view that um, you're, you're supposed to eat those seeds. Those seeds are good. Seeds good. Trash bad. <laughs> um, it seemed really important. Uh, it took me a while to restrain myself to not say something. <laughs> um, a couple of friends of mine, you know, told me about a intense arguments they were having over how to put the silverware, silverware, silverware away. One of them wanted to always leave it in the dish drainer since they would use it later anyways. Why put it away? The other one wanted to sort it in the drawer. So the spoons would be together, forks together. They'd be easy to find. Just a simple, harmless difference of opinion, right? I don't know if you've ever had a relationship where something like that became, became so important. That's the power of clinging to view. As I said the other day, most of us, uh, many of us, would rather be right than be loved.
1: Mm-hmm. In these last several years, politics has been kind of a
0: major area that has really highlighted the pain of clinging to abuse for so many of us. I know families that have completely broken up over this. Friends are no longer friends. The, the wise man, mind might see what's wholesome and unwholesome in a situation but we can do that without adding clinging to the equation, without closing our hearts to the person we disagree with. Can we hold the pain that their belief is hurting, feels painful to us? Can we hold that pain in us and not close our hearts? And is there a way we can just even soften around it instead of hardening our hearts? cutting
1: them off, separating. There are other types of
0: views we may have. They can affect our freedom or happiness. Core beliefs. We believe things sometimes, even if we know better. One of the views that thinned for me quite a bit was uh, believing the world should be fair. I was angry a lot. I had just tremendous anger. Uh, and this, this idea that the world should be fair was so central to my life, to my, the way I viewed the world. I was always railing at how unfair it was, how wrong it was. When I would think about it intellectually, uh, it was obvious to me it wasn't fair. How can I expect it to be? People's lives are motivated by self-interest, by greed, hatred, and delusion, just like all of us. But it didn't matter. My body said it should be fair, and I reacted accordingly. That's the power of conditioning. And over time, that started to ease in me, a little at a time
1: the fruits of the practice, fruits of the path. As long as we believe that happiness is only found
0: through the right conditions, we'll cling, even if we know better that all conditioned things are subject to change. We still tend to think if we find the right person, the right job, the comfortable chair to meditate
1: in, the, all the things that, that we want to have the way we want. So can you connect with ways that your heart has become
0: a little freer around your views. You know, at the beginning of my practice, I worked with someone I represented really strongly. You know, they had a little more authority than I did in our place of work. And I didn't like the decisions they made. And um, I felt, I never felt comfortable around them. I was always judgmental and contentious. And I never thought that resentment would fade. And um, at this point in time, we're friends. <laughs> I, I deeply love love them. You know, it's just it's a, it's wonderful. And that dropped away. You know, that dropped away. Not clinging
1: to views. And in a very deep way, uh, when there's a
0: direct visual experience of not clinging to views, the enchantment that fuels this clinging fades away dramatically
1: until it's gone. The third form of clinging It's clinging to rites and rituals.
0: This relates to attachment to religious forms, but it's also how how we practice. Believing that our way of practicing is correct and other ways are inferior. Or that in the opposite direction, everybody else is doing it right and we're not. They're all meditating better than me. Or that it's the sitting, or that, or that sitting still is what liberates us, not the letting go of clinging. I've heard the phrase, uh, if sitting was enough, uh, chickens would be enlightened. And some practitioners get so tied up in knots trying to achieve the jhanas, the deep absorption states and missing the point that these deeper states come from relaxation and contentment with being happy where we are, with being at ease, not from striving and, and, and craving. On retreats, sometimes we see the teachers and other meditators, you know, on residential retreats, it's more blatant. That they're sitting cross legged on the floor with a very graceful upright posture, which can be a very wonderful support for practice. But we all have different bodies and circumstances, and it may not be appropriate for, for many of us. And this attachment to having the correct posture has not only caused a lot of suffering for meditators. But I've known people who actually
1: gave a practice, formal practice, because they were taught it was the only option. A yogi I knew, um, you know, had been to a number
0: of retreats. And, you know, they they said they, they could never settle. They just could never really settle. Their body was just in too much pain. But they knew they had to sit on the floor. You know, it just... It wasn't real meditation if they weren't sitting on the floor. And um, that's how they've been taught, and it was really deep there. Um, but fortunately, um, you know, this is one of those good luck, bad lucks. A teacher, one of the teachers really hurt their back. And so they taught the retreat sitting on a chair. And though it was unfortunate for the teacher, it was the best thing that happened to this yogi because they were so inspired to see the teacher sitting on a chair, very peaceful, deeply meditating, uh, deeply at ease. And so they finally decided to try it. And it was transformative for them. For the first time, they were really able to uh,
1: practice without being at war with uh, the pain in their bodies. I mean, I still think it's worthwhile for many of us to
0: strengthen our backs and sit on the floor, but not appropriate for everyone. Ajahn Lee once commented um, that sometimes people think they're practicing meditation, but all they're
1: doing is sitting like a post. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. And the fourth type of clinging,
0: and probably in some ways the the most um, tricky one, the most sneaky one, is clinging to the feeling of self. The Buddha said, um, to be free of the conceit, I am, is the greatest happiness of all. It's the realization of nirvana here and now.
1: The personality can still be there, but without any confusion or identification. How much do we think, I think, I am, I like, I don't like, I agree, I don't agree, and so on or
0: my memories, my pain, my past, my wounds, my possessions, my ideas,
1: my problems, my needs. And we can also so identify with my clinging
0: especially in retreat when we come up against it. ah, This is my clinging, missing the fact that it's a conditioned response and just another object of the mind to watch arising and passing away.
1: No more significant than our pinky. It comes and goes. And as the mind quiets,
0: we begin to step back from this experience of I, me, and mine. And we're able to just see that all that there is, is changing patterns of feeling, mood, attitude, sensation.
1: And we can just let them come and go. How much of our attention in meditation is driven by wanting to get somewhere, by wanting to attain something? many, Many times in my formal
0: practice, when I found myself caught up in striving, of wanting to have an experience, wanting something to happen, to attain something, I would remember the title of Ayakama's book, Being Nobody, Going Nowhere. It always make me smile and I'd relax.
1: I love that, that, that simple, simple image. We can experience
0: moments of freedom. One can just be content to just be
1: and to just know what's happening.
0: As we we recognize these universal ways that we humans cling, that clinging isn't a personal failure, that it's just conditioning, and it comes and goes like all activities of the mind, and we begin to trust more and more deeply the natural unfolding of this path, And we gradually begin to actually lose interest in the act of clinging and being at ease in the present, being nobody and going nowhere. It begins to feel more like home. And the practice becomes a way of being, of coming home over and over again to the Dhamma over and over again to the flow of life. But we never leave that flow. It just, we just get caught in our distractions. And when conditions are right, and the threads of clinging get so thin,
1: they just fall away. Then the heart is fully released from all its constraints. And this release, this liberation, nirvana, is a profound
0: shift in the heart, the heart and mind
1: that is at peace, integrated, secure, whole, and fully awake. So thank you.